0: My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Today, my guest on the show is Willem Hurtling. Willem is the author of four award-winning Singularity novels. The latest one of which I just finished reading, and it is called The Turing Exception. So, welcome, Willem. It's so nice to have you back on my show.
1: It is wonderful to be here again. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. By the way. I already had an absolutely excellent, uh, very popular interview, I have to say, that I did with William probably a a year or so ago. Uh, And we had the pleasure of doing that in person at Greg Bear's uh, home near Seattle. So I would really recommend that everyone who hasn't seen that yet to go and check it out because that kind of laid down the foundation for William's work and William's uh, view on issues such as the technological singularity and artificial intelligence. And today we're going to do the, take the next step and go even further and deeper into his latest book, into his uh, views on the topic and how they potentially have evolved uh, since the last time we were together. So William, let me begin with, with precisely this question. Have your views about Artificial intelligence changed or evolved in any dramatic way since our last conversation?
1: Yeah, I would say that I've always had um, the feeling that the that there's a balance of you know potential advantages and potential disadvantages to the singularity risks and and, and benefits, and I feel like the risks that are there. You know i can't be certain about them but i see them and they've been summed up by other people pretty well the but we've also have a lot of challenges facing society today right um climate change uh, resource shortages and in many ways right the continuing acceleration of technology promises to address a lot of those issues so i see both sides one of the things that's changed I think is I see so many more people I feel like trying to d- dismiss the risks of AI. And I find that to be really frustrating because if the starting point is we can't even have a conversation about it, then we certainly can't do anything about it. And that I consider to be a very concerning uh, approach.
0: Well, you know, it's funny It's funny that you say that because uh, your friend Daniel H. Wilson Outright who's a PhD in robotics outright said it it's it, it's it's highly unlikely almost near impossible uh, he has his kind of h- hilarious comedy kind of take on things how do you survive the
1: robot uprising The
0: the pricing and basically you get up from your chair and walk slowly away from the killer robot it, and especially if there's things like stairs you go up the stairs <laughs> slowly you don't have to rush they'll never catch you or something like this right so right. And, and by the way that's not the attitude only from daniel who is a great guy and, and a very smart guy and, and also an expert in the field by the way but also people such as uh, noam chomsky people such as marvin minsky uh and and many others and actually, let me throw in a, a question submitted here by Colm Chase, who is another uh, science fiction author that I'm planning to bring on my show soon. And he asks you this specific question. Nick Postrom published Superintelligence last year, and it alerted Hawking, Musk, and Gates to the potential threat of AGI and ASI, meaning artificial general intelligence and artificial superintelligence. Now the grandees of deep learning, LeCun, Eng, Koch, and others, lining up to, to say these fears are baseless. So where do you stand? Who is right and who is wrong?
1: Um, you know, I don't know who's right and who's wrong, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll react to that in a few different ways. So consider the attitude that we had in the 60s and 70s about the risk of nuclear war. Yeah. We um, did, have not had a nuclear war since then. And one attitude would be, ah, all of those fears were baseless. But how much of our foreign policy and the actions that we took contributed to the fact that we did or didn't have a, <laughs> that we didn't have a nuclear war, right? And so we were engaged in addressing that risk, right? It was in discussion. We were doing taking steps to address that risk, and we haven't had a nuclear war. Does that mean all of the things we did were pointless? You know, I don't. I don't think so. Um, and I feel the same way. We we might not have any problems with AI, um, but we might. And so we need to talk about those. Um, and I, I'm not in the camp where, um, you know, some people are saying we just need to stop all development of AI. I don't believe that's feasible, but I do believe that we can shape what we can do. We can put more safeguards in place. We could say, you know, here are a few scenarios in which AI could get away from us. What could we do to mitigate that?
0: What, for example, would be what, for example, would be some of those safeguards?
1: Um, you know, a kill switch for the internet. Um, a kill switch for computers.
0: For the internet.
1: For the internet. Sure. I mean, we've um, you know we are we've changed protocols that we've used. For example, um, you know we're moving from IP four to IP six. We could. Um, yeah, and it's taken a while, but if we started now, right, we could start putting things in place so that in 10 years down the road, we have a safer computing environment that we have more control over. That comes with its own set of risks, right? Corey Doctorow would say, hey, we're already moving in that direction. We've already got the manufacturers in control. We're losing general purpose computing. So that's a set of risks too. Um, but, but, we, these are at least the things we could talk about. If we agreed that there were a set of risks, then we could talk about what the solutions were.
0: But, but many people would say that those are actually much greater and closer to home risks than the risk of some kind of a vague artificial general intelligence, which is going to occur potentially in the future. Whereas right now, we have abuse, massive surveillance, loss of privacy, uh, and and there's no checks and balances on that system. What you're proposing is kind of even more radical, isn't it? Like a kill switch. And then who's going to have the, the finger on that trigger? Right. And under what conditions would they be allowed to press that trigger?
1: You know, great question. I don't have the answers to that. I think it would be fun to have a discussion about it. I, You know, I, I don't want the government in charge of that, um, you know, but... You know, is there a pool of scientists, and when you know ten out of the twenty scientists who have this special key that's going to go out and kill the internet, you know, put their key in, then it goes. You know, that we could come up with we could come up with something workable where there's a distribution of power that's only called into play when it's a dire situation.
0: Yeah, you 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 have a lot of kind of things that you say about uh, kind of the United States of America and Canada in your book, which are very interesting. Uh, and this kind of reminds me. Your attitude kind of reminds me a little bit on on another thing. Since I'm originally from Europe, in Europe you see the the fear or the mistrust is placed in corporations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: whereas and people tr- are more likely to trust their government d- than a private corporation. Whereas in in North America it's the exact opposite. People tend to highly mistrust their own government and put a lot more trust in corporations. So you're like, I don't trust the government. That's the first thing you say, whereas a European would say, I don't trust the corporations.
1: Well, I mean, in the United States, are they indis- are they distinguishable? I-, I think that could be part of the problem is they're so tightly coupled. There's so much influence, corporate influence on the government um, that it's hard to say where the corporations end and the government begins. So y-
0: when you say you don't trust the government, you also include the corporations then?
1: Definitely. Okay, that's an important distinction.
0: You know what, however, let me, let me tweak our conversation here a little bit. Some of the people who are on the sort of anti-we-should-fear-the-AIs camp have pointed out that the people who are most worried about this scenario are the people who are absolutely not experts in the field. People such as Elon Musk. I mean, he's a fantastic entrepreneur and all all around very intelligent person, he's revolutionizing three industries. Uh, People such as uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, Mm -hmm. uh, and well-known people such as Nick Bostrom. However, none of them is really an AI expert. And and the, the people who are roboticists and who are experts, such as Noam Chomsky, Marvin Minsky, Daniel H. Wilson, and an endless list of others, say we have much higher priority items to worry about and uh, ai is not one of them
1: i mean i would uh
0: what does that say to you does it say anything at all
1: yeah of course it definitely holds weight i think it's a it's a powerful argument in their favor um they are the experts the the counter to that that i would say is they're very grounded right in in solving very specific technical challenges of today whereas folks like Elon Musk or myself we are stepped back from that and we're looking at what's the bigger picture and sometimes i think how grounded you are in in a particular technical challenge is going to blind you to what the bigger picture is and i you know i don't think the people who are talking about risks are saying that we have a risk today they're saying we have a trend, and that trend is in the direction of greater risk, in um, greater benefits, but greater risk as well. And if people take a step back and they look at a bigger pattern, maybe they're going to feel differently. Um, but sure, I, you know, I'm a I'm a software developer, so I know that when you get you know down there uh, in the in the grits of the code and you're trying to figure out problems. You're like, man, I can't believe we haven't had any improvement in, in computing technology in the last 40 years. Programming is still a hard, hard problem. Um, so
0: Ramesh Nam, who is also a software developer at, at some high level and a science fiction writer like you, he's one of the big skeptics.
1: Right. Well, I will say this. So Daniel Wilson was certainly a full skeptic when we first met and started chatting about this a few years ago. Um, we were on a panel a few months ago and someone asked, you know, the same sort of general question. And, and Daniel said, yeah, I think maybe there's a small risk. So it, it could be that as time goes by, we'll start to see a shift in what even the experts start to say. Mm-hmm. So maybe you, maybe you can have Daniel back on and yeah, it's sure. I'd love opinion. to.
0: That would be very interesting. That's why I always ask people who come back for a second time if their views have evolved. So let's right. get back to that point. What's the biggest fundamental difference in your own views since the last time we talked? What's the biggest change?
1: Uh, one thing I read was Our Final Invention by James Barrett, which really covers the gamut of risks. Um, and I had to put it down about halfway through. Because it was just, it was too much of a downer. Um, And I picked it back up and I finished it. And, you know, it just, it refreshes a lot of the risks that I had been thinking about, but maybe had set aside and wasn't thinking about, you know, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And some of, you know, it's not about killer robots, right? It's about what happens when our power infrastructure goes down or the transportation infrastructure. And, you know, most of us do not have a year-long supply of food in our pantry, Right? We're, we're a few days away from starvation. So there's very simple issues that can happen if we sort of lose control of the infrastructure. And then there's bigger issues if you know there really is intelligent entities that are much more intelligent than us, and how are they manipulating us? Um, in some ways, I don't consider that to be the biggest risk. Um, I think I've given this analogy before. My friend Chris Robson says if you're walking down a dark street at night, um, and you see an ominous person coming toward you, you'll never say to yourself, gosh, I hope they're not intelligent. Um, because, you know, if they are intelligent, <laughs> the risk is probably less. So I don't, I don't consider that sort of period where they're somewhat more intelligent than us to be the period of greatest risk. I think it's when we've got AI that's less intelligent than us and there's an accident because their scale of what they can affect is so large. Or if you get to that point where you intelligence really does race ahead and AI becomes vastly more intelligent than us, then do they even notice that we continue to exist?
0: But what's interesting to me is to see that tendency that you have become more kind of uh, cautious at the very least and perhaps, perhaps even a little bit more fearful if that's the right word. Of the singularity, whereas during our first conversation, you were a lot more optimistic.
1: Uh, is that yeah, fair? I think I've become more balanced. Um, <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe I part of what I'm doing is, is I'm reacting to other people's dismissal of the risks. Uh huh. I, I I want to be clear that there are risks. And if you dismiss them, then we're not going to have a conversation about them. And I think that's one of the things that drew me in the touring exception to get further into what I see as the dark uh, side of things.
0: Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So that's a good point to kind of uh, bring up your own book and and get a little bit uh, more in depth uh, in it. So let me ask you before that, you've already written three singularity novels. Why write the fourth one? Was there missing something in the story or why even bought, like you've done a great job on the previous three books. I've read them all. Why write a fourth one?
1: A lot of things factored into that. Um, One of them was the fact that the books are set at 10-year intervals and they start at 2015, so 2025, 2035. And, you know, 2045 is always the year that is thrown about for when it's, you know, almost inevitable because of the accelerating rate of Uh, computer uh, capacity. So it just felt somewhat that I was called to write that fourth book. Um, Also, a book that I read that was very influential was Charles Strauss's Accelerando, which I know that you've read um, and loved. And that book is also set in four parts. So to a certain extent, I think that the four parts sort of mirrored the structure of Accelerando, which was very influential to me. I hadn't written before I had read Accelerando, and that book sort of called me to write
0: Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that timeline because you're saying 10 years apart, sort of uh, 2015, 25, 35, and 45. Now, the 2045 date is being thrown around by predominantly Ray Kurzweil. Werner Vinge, for example, published his famous NASA paper in 1992 or 93, if I remember, and he said within 30 years in that paper, and he still sticks by his timeline today which means 2022. So in other words, he is a lot more optimistic in some ways or, or kind of he's moving forward the timeline by 23 years, which is a big difference.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've sort of done the same, you know, spreadsheet calculations that Kurzweil does, and I feel like there's a range of possibilities. The... Google and other companies have acquired a great deal of computing power and what they can do with an entire data center. um, In fact, I did the math and I don't know off the top of my head, but I want to say it's like what Google has in their data center is what you'll have on your desktop in 20 years. And um, that's important to me because part of what I believe, and this is a concern that Daniel Wilson brings up, is the rate of progress in AI and one of the things that i think both will accelerate process progress and increase risk is the point at which ai sort of moves into the hobbyist community and so that means that while google can play with ai now in their data center for hobbyists to do it um it's got to come down right in in accessibility quite a bit and that's one of the things so by 2045 you know, you've got the computing power on your desktop that Google has in their data center in 2025. So, you know, to me, that just opens up exponentially the number of possibilities that we can have AI occur.
0: AI experts such as uh, Ben Gertzio are thinking that we could have the singularity even now, for example. Uh, And as far as Google's computing power goes, I think they've surpassed 1 million servers a couple of years ago, which is really a flabbergasting number when you think (laughs) of it. Like it, right. it blows my mind. And and when you add what you just said, well, in twenty years from today, it will be twenty thirty five, and we'll have a million servers on our desktops. Right. And and so let me ask you this, and connect that to your hobbyist point. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that that you know someone in their garage can make an AI or 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 develop something like Watson, something perhaps much more powerful? Is that a good thing? democratizing that technology or is it better to keep it secluded under observation with experts and people who are not just going to, you know, do whatever they feel like doing?
1: There's going to there's gonna be pros and cons. It's like taking military armament and putting it into the hands of people. Um, there's definitely going to be risks, right? Um, if you have somebody who you want to call, say, an AI terrorist who wants to weaponize AI in some way they're going to be able to do it much more easily in 2045. On the other hand, I think, you know, one of the things that AI well, I think one of the things that people want is connection, right? They want connection to other people. And I believe, you know, Daniel Wilson and I talk about this question of why would we have a general purpose AI? Most of the need is for specialist, you know, problem-solving AI. And I always say, you know, we want an AI that's like a person because we want companionship.
0: To have a date basically.
1: <laughs> yes,
0: or, or the a movie, friend
1: her was probably my favorite movie of last year, um, uh, and, and because I think it really speaks to that. That um, so that's what I think is one of the things that will happen with hobbyists is that you'll see a lot more in that sort of space, much more sort of human one-to-one kind of AI interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. Now we we discussed the kind of the the timeline that's continuous from the first to the last of your books. But is there an overarching idea or a thesis that spans throughout or evolves throughout the books?
1: Not, not an intentional one. Um, each book that I wrote was standalone, so with no intention of writing another book, <laughs> and so only to the extent that my own ideas have sort of evolved. But they're nothing planned.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So. So let's talk a little bit about the title then. What does the Turing exception stand for? Why call your book the Turing exception?
1: Yeah, to my mind, right, the Turing test is sort of the canonical term in terms of whether or not we've reached, um, artificial intelligence, a strong AI and the, um, and as as a computer programmer, right, an exception is an unhandled condition and, uh, in, in particular, usually there are several layers of error handling that occur. Um, and when you've sort of blown past all of those, um, what you get is an exception that blows, you know, that, that kills your, the execution of your program. Um, so to me, this was the combination of those two things. So the AI that causes, you know, the error beyond which we are, have the systems in place to handle
0: hmm. Very interesting. So, okay, let's see, how are we going to navigate the, the tricky waters here and talk a little bit about your book as, as much as we can, without giving away any spoilers, because the book has some very interesting turns and twists that I don't want to give away. So <laughs> let's see, what can you tell us about your book? What is it about?
1: Uh, so it's 2045, and there's been strong AI for 30 years, basically. There's an event near the beginning of the book where there's a runaway nanotech, uh, you know, basically gray goo in Miami, and um, it, Miami gets destroyed as a result of that. AI get blamed because they're the only ones that have the technological know-how to have created the nanobots, and the US outlaws AI within their borders, which creates this divided world. Um, And the US goes through a great deal of hardship, right? Because we've become accustomed to a world in which there's AI and solves all of our problems. So we see sort of on one hand, the US is regressing, but they're also in their own way, right? Solving some of the social problems that came about as AI, uh, unemployment and and stuff like that. but at the same point in time, right, the AI are threatened by this. So the AI that are out there see that um, the U.S. has managed to outlaw AI. And what if that is a trend that goes on? And the AI have to take their own steps to reduce risk.
0: Now, there's a bunch of themes here that I want to grab one by one. So let's start first with the actual terrorist attack, the, the nano attack that the book begins with. Nowhere does it say in your book that it was triggered by AI.
1: Correct. Nowhere in the book do we even know that it's a terrorist act.
0: We don't. Exactly. So so so. how do we not know that we can't blame the, the humans or a group of or a human for that? How can we not say that at the root of all evil, there was a human standing there who caused that war?
1: I... Because, you know, t- to me, this was my mirror on what we do today, which is um, we blame, you know, a group or a- an individual for the a situation other. and we d- we blame the other. Um, and it just becomes an immediate attack on that without really understanding the root cause. Um, and
0: But isn't that, that in favor of the fact that the blame is within us, not within the AI then? that the problem lies within us and the way we kind of ascribe meaning to the world without taking the time to investigate scientifically and properly and have a, a good logical conclusion about cause and effect?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, that was, that's exactly my concern.
0: <laughs> Very interesting. So so it could be, in fact, a human who, I mean, it's unclear, right? You do, You don't say it, you don't have to say it, but That's one thing that I actually really liked is that, you know, it's unclear who started it all. I mean, we kind of started it as a reaction to this terrorist attack, but we don't know who was the the originator of the terrorist attack, and it could well be us. Because to tell you the truth, me personally, I'm more concerned about humans than AIs. I think that humans, you know, have a long history of killing millions of other humans, and, and we know for a fact that there's, a large number of humans today who, if they could put their hands on, you know, WMDs, they would not hesitate one second to use them and kill as many people as possible for whatever reason that that may be. Uh, so so <laughs> based on that history of ours, I'm actually a lot more concerned about humans and I would put them at the higher priority of the fear factor or the danger factor, us, our own selves. Right. So in other words, This well could be a case where we actually self distract ourselves or trigger a sequence of events which leads eventually.
1: That's true. And in the other case where it's merely an accident, there is no ill intention whatsoever, then really it's not the accident that's the precipitating incident. It's really our response to it. Um, And so if our response is always to go find people to blame and kill then there will always be a natural consequence, natural sequence of events that occur from that, that have almost nothing to do with what the original cause was.
0: That that kind of reminds me a little bit of the second Iraqi war, right? September 11 happens, then we react and overreact and say, okay, you guys did it, and of course we know they didn't do it, and we know they didn't even have WMDs, but, and now look at the mess we are in today. So, so, in other words, I'm still kind of pushing my line here that it's humanity's weaknesses that we have to be worried about, not so much the, the, the AIs.
1: Right. Um, and, you, you know, interestingly, one of the books I just read was Jack uh, McDivitt's The Devil's Eye, um, in which this is a theme because there's basically a world at risk um, that, that I think there's been, uh, uh, you know... Uh, supernova and and there's gamma radiation coming toward a planet and everyone's at risk but the two parties that basically have enough ships to rescue the people of the world are at war and they can't stop um and nobody really knows they can't stop fighting nobody even really knows why they're at war it's just been going on for so long and they can't get out of it and of course the people of the world are like could you just stop just stop fighting put aside your ships and come rescue us um And I don't want to give away the outcome of that book. But it does seem like one of the, you know, common tropes of science fiction is this question of why do people fight? And why does it seem like we could never stop fighting except when we're united in the face of a common threat?
0: Mm -hmm. Now, let, let me grab that thought here about sort of the purpose of science fiction. So you kind of said that it's kind of experimenting about ideas with the future and the potentialities that could unfold during our previous interview. But Cory Doctorow says, and Ramesh Nam is of the same school, that it's a lot more to do with the presence, with our present day issues than than the future. Uh, Now, let me ask you, has your book have a lot to do with today, the America of today? Because you do some kind of what looks to me like Almost social commentary in some way, the overreaction of the American government, the unilateralism, the decide to the decision to ban all AIs originally, then eventually all humans who have enhanced themselves in one way or another, and only pure pure bloods, if you will, could take government offices and stuff like that. Uh, and 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 the funny thing is, then then people go become refugees to Canada. So is that? <laughs> showing something about your concerns and what you think, or is it just a literally uh, tool for you to unfold a story, to tell a story?
1: No, it's definitely social commentary. I mean, those are definitely concerns that I have and that I explore. Um, I, I, I think its it seems to me to be almost impossible to escape the social issues of the day. I mean, every book is going to reflect its author's concerns, whether... They're merely the social issues of the day or particular concerns that that particular author has about the world. Um, They're going to be reflected, and we can change the setting, uh, and we can experiment. I mean, to me, I feel like uh, Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, a show that I grew up on in the 80s that I loved, was really – it was always about that. It was always about taking the social issues of the day, right, putting them through the lens of the future and showing how they change. And – You know, in some cases, it's just a way to look at the social issues of the day. In other cases, it's a way to look at, you know, what can happen if we do X, Y, and Z? How can this thing change?
0: Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let's talk a little bit more about the book then. Two of your main characters, Mike and Leon, they have created an institution. I think it was towards the end of your or at the end of the first book in the series that's called uh, the... What is it? The Institute for Applied Ethics. Uh huh. So, how important is ethics in dealing with sci- with uh, artificial intelligence?
1: For for me to think about specifically the area of strong AI that has to deal with how AI treat humans, right? The, that is the area I've chosen to explore the most. So, you know, I've said that there's all the questions of what to do if there's an accident and the power grid goes out. Um, It doesn't make for a super exciting story. (laughs) I'd rather rather get into the sort of the ethical issues and the social reputation, which is also an interest of mine. Um, And so that's the area I choose to explore. And so the Institute for Applied Ethics presumably has a number of different charters, but primary among that is how do you embody a system of ethics in the ai so that they choose to treat humans in in a good way Um, and a lot of that also is a social commentary on our times um, that comes from a lot of my work in social media and blogging where so much of what we do is based upon reputation Um, And so I've sort of applied, you know, what happens if you take that notion of reputation and say, hey, we're going to codify it. We're going to give it a number. Everyone's got a reputation and your access to resources and your ability to do things is dependent upon what your reputation is. Um, And so that's the world the AI live in, which has um, its pros and cons. Um, So it is effective in the context of the book at guiding AI to do this. And yet they resent it because Basically, they've become a caste society at the whim of a human-imposed rule system.
0: Exactly. So you have flawed humans who are not necessarily perfect uh, in in ethics or with respect to ethics, who are in charge of this ethical reputation system of the AIs, which basically decides whether they would procreate, whether they would get a higher access to computing resources, et cetera.
1: Right. You know, and in in truth, right, it is set up, it isn't just a human-based system. Um, Mike and Leon work with other trusted AI. Um, But at the end of the day, um, it becomes one of those things, which is, can any society trust others to make the rule for them?
0: So then the question is, is that merely a problem of poor ethical system that evaluates those relationships and regulates them? Or is that? you know, a way of saying that there cannot be an ethical system which can properly regulate the relationships between such vastly uh, differing in kind and power and capabilities and intelligence entities such as AIs and humans?
1: It's a good question. Um, My first reaction was to say that humans roughly speaking, share a system of ethics that has many things in common. However, a lot of that is also biological in nature, right? Um, Our ability to love other people, form connection with other people, harm other people is governed by um, responses that happen at a chemical level um, that we don't often have conscious control over. And for AI, there can be much more divergence. Um, So, it's a great question, is how would you do that if there's much more divergence? One of the things that I posit is that AI won't really... Humans don't have one system of decision-making, right? Um, The mechanism that we use to draw our hand back from fire is different, right? It doesn't happen. It's not a thinking process. I don't think, my hand is hot, let me draw my hand back. It happens somewhere, you know, in my spinal column. The um, process that we use to fall in love with somebody. Um, happens differently than the process that we use to think about what sort of job should I have. And I have to imagine that AI will have, in the end, a really sophisticated, strong AI is going to have multiple models for how it comes to conclusions, right? No one system of decision making is going to rule supreme. So that's something I explore in the novels. And then the question is, is, so what role can that have in deciding ethics? And can we instill some of that in all AI you know maybe you can if it's all centrally designed if it's Google designing the AI maybe they put their ethics module in all of them but then gosh what happens when you get to the open source community and you've got a bunch of hackers and they're deciding how to compile their AI and they're like ethics module screw that
0: yeah, but I, I mean, I'm even skeptical on the first step, to tell you the truth, because I don't know that Google ha- has a, an ethics model that works, per se. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I mean, sure, they have some kind of a funny rule, don't be evil, but do they follow it? How useful is that on, on, for decision-making purposes? I'm very highly skeptical sure. of its usefulness or utility. So Sure.
1: But, uh, you know, I mean, this is the thing is one, once you admit that, there's some risk to AI, then you can start having some really interesting conversations, right? And I'm not going to be able to tell you what that system of ethics should be. But if we had a whole bunch of people who, instead of arguing about whether or not there's some risks, were to sit down and say, how could we deal with this ethics issue? Then maybe we could actually have some really some innovation in that space.
0: To some extent, I agree with you, but to me, the proper framework would be kind of similar or approximating or based on, for example, our attitude towards children. I mean, I don't have children, you do, but it, it occurs to me that you as a father have no guarantee that you're not bringing up the next Hitler, right? You can do everything you can, and yet they can be mass murderers or they can be <laughs> genocidal <laughs> maniacs that, that not my kids. Uh, obliterate humanity, right? Of course, everybody says, not my kids, but, but the reality is you have no guarantee. That's not right. the case. I mean, Hitler's mom didn't expect he would be what he was probably, right? So right. so we kind of, can, can we expect a guarantee, in other words, from bringing up AIs when you don't have such guarantee with, with children? Basically, when you're talking right. about autonomous, intelligent beings which are outside of our control, the best we can do, I think, personally, is we can be guardians and mentors rather than Rigid rule
1: enforcers. So, yeah, I mean, the example of children is a, a good one to explore because we don't know what's going to happen, but we try. We try a whole bunch of different things.
0: Yeah, and some of us fail and some of us succeed.
1: Right, but we, we use rules. At some point with our children at certain ages, we use hard fast rules. At other points, we lead by example. At other points, um, you know, we have them practice things that changes how they how they work, right? And we hope that their education shows them the advantages of all of these things, right? They go to kindergarten to learn how to cooperate with other kids, which they may or may not have learned at home, um, which stands them in good use as they go through subsequent grades. If they don't learn that lesson, right, then they have a lot of problems, Um and now, so a really interesting ethical question would be: So, if you have a bunch of strong AI and you send them off to 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 kindergarten, and one of them doesn't learn how to cooperate, what do you do? Does it get to go to the first grade? Does it get to continue to exist? Right? Uh, the safe thing to do would be to say eh, that that line of AI is dead. Uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna release that one, and we're not gonna release any of its uh, siblings or offsprings. right? Um, and then. You know, of course, how how did the AI feel about that?
0: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So what about the idea of friendly AI? Taking that to the next step further by design, let's say, which, you know, people from the Machine Intelligence Research Institute have been working on, creating some kind of a framework where we kind of evolve and or program AIs with deeply embedded kind of friendliness towards humanity?
1: Uh, I think it's wonderful. I think that that's what we need more of. Um, Is it realistic? It's, I think it's reasonable to try.
0: It's worth trying, I, yes.
1: It's worth trying, right? So if you've, if you've got risks and you've got tools to measure, to, to reduce it, that's one worth investigating. And we have a lot more people contributing to that.
0: So we, we talked about the institute and sort of the opening scene of the book, uh, to which humanity kind of overreacts. Talk to us a little bit about the sort of evil AI, as it were, the the XOR.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's basically there's a faction of AI for whom they're they're just doing the math and they're saying, "What's the likelihood of our survival um, if we simply stay with the status quo?" which is allow humans to basically coexist here on this earth with us and have a controlling say in how AI work um, versus what if we were to get rid of them? And uh, from the name XOR for the exclusive OR operation, their conclusion is they're better off eliminating humans. Um, And that becomes then the predominant theme of the book that XOR has a plan. They're going to eliminate humans to reduce their own risk. Which of course is right exactly the opposite of our situation where we're saying, should we allow AI? Is that is the risk worth it? They're they're on the other side and they're saying, hey, we're the AI and these humans seem risky to us. They've already outlawed um, AI in this region of the world. What if that expands? That's a that's a big risk.
0: But but the important point we should not forget though is that you kind of show how this calculation evolves over time, right? So that's not the, the calculation they start with. In fact, they start with the calculation that it is better and safer to sustain the, the status quo, but due to the, the way that, that things start evolving, mainly in result in response to our own actions, then the AI's calculations start to shift and eventually shift to the point where it is actually safer for them to fight us rather than do nothing.
1: Right, and, and that's really two different th- phenomenon going on. One of them is they see um, more humans shifting to an anti-AI perspective, which increases the threat from their perspective, which of course is something we have to consider in our world, just human to human, right? When we are hostile toward a group, what's that group's reaction going to be? The the risk has increased, right? And they're going to be driven to take ever more desperate measures. Um, But the other thing the AI are doing are, of course, they're strengthening their own sort of resilience. Um, Going back to the Daniel Wilson example, like how to survive a robot uprising, you know, in the current day, you would say, uh, go upstairs and wait until their batteries run out. (laughs) It's really simple, right? Because the infrastructure isn't that robust. If we're not there to keep the infrastructure working, um, the robots eventually run out of power and they're all dead. And the same thing would be true um, in a world if you took, even if we had an AI today, sitting in Google's data center, if the humans went away, you know, eventually those computers stop running, eventually the power goes away. So, they are taking steps to ensure their own resilience. They're building their own underground data centers. They're doing those kinds of things. And so those two things basically reach a crossover point.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, let me push you here a little bit on one small point, perhaps. Uh, During our previous interview, we discussed the Artilect War uh, idea by Hugo de Garis, where we had humanity divided between cosmists and Terrans, which is to say pro-AI and anti-AI. And that's kind of, to, to him, the more likely scenario. And, and, and of course, the Terrans who were the anti-AI camp, had the sort of incentive, in his view, to strike first. Because if they delay too long, then they'll definitely lose in the long run. Now, let me ask you this, though. Why didn't we see a deep enough division and or perhaps clash between the pro-human AIs and the anti-human AIs?
1: Well, yeah, um, partly I'm going to say it, just the limitations of storytelling. Um, when I started out the book, I'm not a huge um, planner. I, a lot of it is go- goes by the seat of my pants, and um, I figured out what all the different factions were. Um, the pro-AI, the anti-AI, the moderates, the pro-humans, the anti you know, and the problem was was there were too many groups that I could tell to be able to for me to make a novel to really encompass all of those viewpoints and do a good job to all of them. Um, so I sort of simplified and and focus on the few viewpoints I thought I could represent. I most. mean, you do have
0: the pro-human AI group in in the face of let's say Elope and I think Jacob, uh, right. the, the medical AI, but 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 it's it's just a little bit less kind of distinct and and, and crystallized and, and clear rather than, for example, you do a great job at showing the fractions, for example, in the US president presidential administration, right? The, the anti-extremist, anti-AI people there and the people who are moderate but try to kind of diminish the, the negative effects, if you will, and that's why they're going along with it. Yeah, but so yeah. that that's that's one part where you you did a fantastic job, I think, um, actually.
1: Yeah, I, I had a lot of fun with that. I didn't anticipate doing it, but the whole, the whole American presidency turned out to be one of my favorite things to explore.
0: It's it's very interesting to me to, to to hear that you say you're not a big planner. So let me ask you, how do you kind of develop those characters? Do they kind of take a life on their own?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's absolutely my favorite aspect of writing. Um, I try to get as far into the characters as possible and make them behave in ways that's logical for their for their personality. And I mean, I have some general scope of where the book needs to go, um, and then uh, I, you know, I'm figuring out how to how to make them work. I, it makes me think about you know when you're planning uh, in a corporation. You always talk about, you know, the three dials we have are resources, um, time, and, and and feature list, and um, you can only lock down at most two of those things. One of those things has to float. So the characters, for me, they're locked down, and how they choose to respond is locked down, but based upon who their personality is, and um, then the sort of there's a general shape to the plot that's locked down. But then the actual events, like what people choose to do within that and how they respond to it, that's where I have the most freedom to see where things go. uh, And I love to do that.
0: Fascinating. And let me say that, you know, I've read all your books, uh, and you did a great job on the first book, and I loved it. But I can see how you've been evolving and developing as a writer. And I got to say that the latest book was the most gripping of all. They're all fantastic. But the latest one was just like, a clear sort of development for you as a writer and as a storyteller. And, and I really enjoyed it because I had to flip through some of the pages, like really like, I, I want to go see what happens next. I want to see what happens next. <laughs> However, I'm afraid we're going to give away too much of your storyline of your plot. So, so, so I, I think we want to move kind of uh, beyond uh, the details, the specifics around your book and just uh, kind of ask a few general questions here. Which are related in some way or another, but in the conflict of human humanity and, and AI, can humanity really, honestly, ever hope to win that conflict if we come to that conflict?
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Um, if we really have strong AI with you know full access of freedom. Um, that are self-motivated and continuing to accelerate. I don't think – and we get into this situation where there's a conflict. I don't think we can win it. It's it's lost by that point in time. So it's a little bit like having grown-up children that have vastly more power than you. Um, you just really have to hope that you did a good job <laughs> when they were kids um, and that they're going to treat you well. Um, and that's what I think the situation will evolve to if we, if we go on that trajectory.
0: So – <laughs> what does that say about our chances of survival in a potential singularity?
1: Um, could could be really tough. I mean could be really scary and that's one of the things you know when I read our final invention, I became more scared about the scenario. Um, that being said, you know as I said, it's so there's a there's a big part of me that says the ultimate risk is too great. But I also know that we have these other risks to balance, right? If we, if we run out of water, things are going to be dire. So we need, you know, technological progress to help resolve those issues.
0: So despite those kind of existential risks, you think we should not stop developing AI and we should keep pushing a artificial general intelligence, artificial superintelligence, despite those risks?
1: I don't, I, don't, I don't think that we have the option to stop it. It's not even on the table as a feasible possibility I think the best we can do is hope to shape it and so that's where we should focus our efforts through through friendly AI and other approaches.
0: very interesting. So what would be your advice then to anyone who is watching this interview right now and who perhaps may be interested in kind of mitigating the risk in favor hopefully of our survival as a species what should they do?
1: What should they do? Um, learn learn more about friendly AI. Be willing to have these discussions with people. Um, and you know, if you're a software engineer, this is, and you're not working on AI, maybe this is the time in your career to start thinking about being more active in that space.
0: Now, the sort of large singularitarian communities offer, often blame for being way too optimistic. Uh, do you think that's true? Uh,
1: yeah, I definitely see aspects of it uh, And a few years ago, um, I often heard the comments that, oh people are just treating this like a religion um, and and I, d- I didn't quite get it then, but now a few years later, I definitely see that. Um, and I think that's you know I think that's equally a foolish position, which is which is why I find myself, you know feeling like I'm sort of square in the middle, right? There's benefits, there's risks, and, and I hope we could move more people toward the middle.
0: Hmm. And some people tend to put the blame for such optimism largely on Ray Kurzweil himself. Do you think that's fair?
1: I No, I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, Ray Kurzweil clearly has an optimistic viewpoint, but I think it's people's responsibility to educate themselves beyond taking the perspective of one person, and letting that be their entire worldview. So I'm not going to shoulder the blame on Ray. Uh, I'm going to shoulder the blame on people who don't bother to read further and learn learn more from a variety of different opinions.
0: Very interesting. Uh,
1: So if I'm
0: forcing you to give us a percentage number of our chances of survival, what would that number be?
1: I'm going to give what seems like a high number. I'm going to tell you, I think our chance of survival is eighty or ninety percent. Wow! But that, but bear in mind, you know, a ten percent chance uh, of really bad things happening is um, still a pretty substantial chance. Um,
0: still, I mean, you're you're giving us a very good chance of survival. I I, I mean, I'm always amazed when I ask people that question because. You know, Michael Anisimov gave us like I can't remember if it was two percent or something like that. Uh, George Dvorsky gave us like I don't know fifteen or twenty percent. I've done those interviews some years ago, but so I've forgotten the exact numbers. But it's always different from what I'd expect, and and it's been impressively on the low end.
1: Well, one of the other things that I'll say is. You know, you asked the chance of survival, and I think that's quite high. I think the odds of us truly being completely wiped out is sort of low. But better, maybe a better question to ask would be, you know, what's the likelihood of making it through without severe sort of disruptions to our lives? And that I would give a much lower likelihood to. You know, that I would say is definitely below 50%, and I don't want to really go further than that. Um, but let me turn it around. So you have interviewed more than people than anyone else I know, and obviously your own opinion on this has to be affected. What's, uh, what do you think?
0: <sighs> well, I kind of tend to fluctuate a little bit, uh, but generally speaking, again, I tend to be in the camp that we do have higher things to fear about. I, I, like you, I, I think it's a very valuable conversation to have. Um, the conditions for AI are very important because they'll shape their kind of young minds or, or behavior and everything. Um, and that's why, you know, whether it's a military AI or a hobbyist AI or, a, you know, a research AI, it would make a huge difference. Uh, but, but I do still think that even for the purposes of the AI outlook and actions, humanity would have kind of the larger input role. So just like in your book, uh, we have the capacity in us to either overreact or, in other words, create the wrong context within which uh, a, a, a positively predisposed AI may end up changing the calculation as it evolved in your own book and decide that it is safer for them if we don't exist as a species. So in other words, yes, the AI is is, is an important thing we should consider and prepare for and, and have that conversation. But the bigger conversation than that is perhaps about looking in the in the mirror at our own selves and and, and thinking about what is it that me or us can do to diminish that risk, be it personally, be it collectively. Uh, and and I think uh, I don't see to tell you the truth, too much of an of an optimist note on that sense, uh, in the sense that we tend to repeat our mistakes throughout history, and uh, looking at the world today, it doesn't seem like we tend to, we've learned much in some ways. So mm-hmm. yes, there's amazing progress, and yes, uh, there's amazing people, but there's also you know the opposite kind of people. Uh, and And if AI gets in touch with them one way or another, or is created by them, then those people would shape that AI in that way, which would not be good for us as a whole, as as a species. So again, just to be clear, I think the puck stops with us. it's It's us. it's It's humanity that we have to blame for our success or failure to survive this century. Which is kind of like the reason why I started this blog, uh, and which is why the blog is mostly, I hope, trying to stir the, the sort of humanity to 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 imagination, to to considering these issues and to ethics, to to considering the framework within which we make those decisions, and and to start you know asking those tough questions and start you know thinking about where we should be and we should we we, we would be when that mm-hmm. moment comes. I it's mean, I, I can't say I have the, the answer. <laughs> I wish I did. None of us do. But 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 yeah, my, my greatest concern is humanity. It's not AI. All of our troubles, just like even in personal, in personal, sc- sort of in the personal realm, my greatest enemy to my success as a blogger and as a podcaster, as a good husband, as a good human being, as a good leader, as a good anything is me. So I'm my greatest enemy, it's not someone out there. I sabotage myself, I I kind of fail to accomplish the tasks I've set to myself for one reason or another. And therefore, I am my greatest enemy. And in, in, at the collective and, and level, so, I think it's true too.
1: Right, uh, it, it's so true, right? Uh, especially with regard to happiness. How much of that comes from inside us? And yet, the vast majority of people who are not thinking about it will just always blame external circumstances.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the external circumstances are something we don't necessarily have control over and which are important. But in the end of the day, we mediate our circumstances through our intelligence and through our emotions and And therefore, it's not input output, but it's input processing and then output. And that's where our strengths and our weaknesses lie in that processing stage. Uh, and, and you know, quite honestly, I'm struggling with this myself in my own kind of world to be a better person, better blogger and a better podcaster and, and more successful in, in, and and it, it's me who I have to blame for 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 my flaws and my failures. And yes, I've made some progress, but probably not as much as I would have hoped to. And and yes, many people have helped me, but in the end of the day, they can't fight my own battles. Uh, you know, we all have to step up to the plate, be it individually or collectively, uh, and make the difference for ourselves, I think. <laughs> wow! I I didn't expect we'd be going in that direction. You never,
1: you never know it's going to come out. Uh, wow. Okay, that <laughs> when was when a great interview. I that was wonderful.
0: Thank, well, thank you Rob. for sharing. No, th- thank you. I mean, it's uh, it, I will. I didn't <laughs> expect that one. Okay, so um, let's see. Where are we? So, let me ask you about this. Um, Cynthia Stewart submitted this question. Mr. Hurtling, do you see a trend toward democratized content and intermediate collaboration in the interest of promoting science fiction? Thank you, that's her question.
1: Do I see towards uh, towards democratized content? content and intermedia
0: collaboration? In the interest well, so, of promoting science
1: yeah, fiction? Yeah, so, I mean, certainly in the terms of content, right? The biggest change of the last five years has been the move towards self-publishing which removed the gatekeepers from the publishing world, um, which definitely before, you know, it was a very, you were either in the publishing world or you were out, and that publishing world was very cozy um, uh, and functioned to keep many people out of it. So it's far more democratic now. That still doesn't mean that it's easy to get an audience, um, but at least people have the opportunity to try, and that's a big change. Uh, and to a certain extent, I think seeing um, all of these webisodes is the same thing happening in um, the media space. In terms of, it's now possible for someone to put on their own TV show um, or a podcast, uh, and so you're uh, democratizing that. I'm 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 not sh- quite sure about the question about the intermedia collaboration. What that what that looks like? Um,
0: yeah. Uh, I I'm not sure I quite quite get her question too, but but I do know she's a writer like you uh too, by the way. So perhaps you can share a little bit more about the, the sort of the self-publishing route and and tell us a little bit about sort of the technology and the changes and the process and the the ways that you're kind of taking advantage of these changes now as a writer yourself who has four books behind his back.
1: Right. Uh so all of my books are self-published. The um, first one I took out to publishers, Um, it was rejected a number of times. And in retrospect, I would say that's, I think, normal. I think my book appeals most strongly to a technical audience, to people who are either interested in the singularity or have a deep interest in technology, uh, and especially people who like to think about the future of technology. And they're just going to resonate most strongly with that. And you know, there's no agent out there in the world or publisher out there in the world who's thinking, oh, I need to make books specifically for this audience. Um, So for me, self-publishing was definitely the right route to reach those folks. Um, I learned a lot, as you said, in terms of the quality of my writing. Um, That was probably another reason why the first book didn't make it out with any publishers. Uh, I also learned a lot about the Process of publishing. So my first book went out with a single phase of um, proofreading, and I got a lot of feedback about errors in the book and grammar issues and stuff. And uh, over time, the process has gotten a lot more sophisticated. And now, you know, I have developmental editing and copy editing and proofreading that's done by you know someone who is the proofreader for a major metropolitan newspaper, and you know subsequent rounds and. What I basically have ended up with is the process that a traditional publisher would use to publish a book, and it's much more time-consuming and costly, um, and I, but I have a lot more respect now for traditional publishers and what they do. Um, so I what I will say is the road is accessible to people now, but it really requires a lot of investment and in time uh, and learning to do it because at the end of the day, what you're saying is, if you're an indie and you're going to try to go this route, you have to learn everything that a big publisher would do. Um, and I haven't even talked really about marketing, but you have to learn everything that a pub- big publisher would do just to get your book out. And you're one person. And I can't tell you how many times I've said, God, do I really need to learn another thing? Do I really need to become an expert in the EPUB format? I don't want to. Right. Uh, and you get to make choices. Am I going to hire this out or am I going to do it myself? And, uh, you, you know, how many times will you do that? So there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, In terms of getting the book out and getting the word of mouth out, for me, that's a lot of fun. I mean, I love being on social media. Um, I love doing stuff like this. I mean, this is a blast going up and meeting Greg Baer and Mez and and doing all of that Uh, last year the year before was just so much fun. That's not for everybody. Um, And some people really don't want to be active on social media. That becomes quite a challenge for them. Um, to how are they going to get themselves out there
0: yeah i have to say i know what you're talking about when you're saying do i really have to learn this because I, i kind of struggle with the same issues like do i really have to learn when i was starting do i have to learn html do i have to learn wordpress do i have to learn about plugins and security and now do i have to learn forum plugins and do i have to learn about microphones and sound editing, and what about video, HD, and now 4K, and then lights, and then placing of the microphones, and then post-production, and then marketing. And yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, there, there's a there's a wonderful Robert Heinlein quote. It's one of my favorites. It's his quote about how a man should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, uh, design a building, and, and it ends with, you know, specialization is for insects. Um, and, and it's a wonderful quote. And, and I do appreciate it. It's like I spend my life immersed in technology, but like to get a chance to try to build a fire from scratch without using any matches in the rain, like that is, that is so rewarding when you get to do it. And so, you know, I try to embrace that as much as possible. It's like, you don't necessarily want to learn it, but once you do, there's a phenomenal sense of accomplishment that I have learned. I may not be a master at web design or, you know, audio production or something. But I've, I've entered the realm of being able to do it. And it's incredibly rewarding for people. Um, and, you know, that's just something we should take advantage of as human beings is to broaden our horizons as much as possible because it's so rewarding when we do it.
0: Yeah, and, and I agree. And I love Robert's uh, quote. But but I, for example, hate editing, right? So So I can do it. I do it. It takes me forever. And I don't do a very good job. And I hate it. So, but I do it because I have to, but in an ideal world i'll i I' would outsource all of those things and just focus on the things that I'm good at and and where I think I can make the biggest difference, which is the research part and the interview part, and then hopefully all the other parts somehow magically will be done for me but I mean that's the ideal world, so
1: maybe there'll be an a i in the future who will do it for you.
0: Yeah, or, or if I'm a little bit more uh, financially successful, I'll be able to hire a, a bigger team. And I, or my team's grown, but, but still not quite where it needs to be. Anyway, um, I don't want to drag this for way too long now, because uh, I've been keeping you for a long time. But let me give you my last two or three questions here. So what do you hope to achieve in your life within the next, let's say, five years?
1: Uh, I, would, I am enjoying writing right now. I hope to um, write more, get a couple of books out. I would love to be able to get to the point of um, quitting my day job as a computer programmer to write full-time. So that's one of my goals. The book that I'm working on next, um, is the working title is Tomo. Um, and it comes back to the present day. So I've gone all the way out to 2045. I don't feel like I can go any further. I'm coming back to the present day. Uh, and it's a woman who works at the world's largest social media company. And um, she's a data analyst. And she profiles people and does things to them. Um, and <laughs> it, should be, it should be very interesting. Um, so for me, like my next big challenge is, can I do another book that's… Uh, not Singularity. Not- not singularity um, and hopefully be a success at it, and hopefully I can.
0: Fantastic! Any update on movie rights or interest um, or anything?
1: Yeah, so uh, right now I have a screenwriter that I'm working with who is interested in helping to develop it. Which and, book? Oh, uh, we're starting with the um, the, the last firewall.
0: Uh huh.
1: And um, that seems like the one that's most commercial. And we're trying to figure out the right way to pitch that. Um, so it's really great because as a writer, and especially as an indie writer, I don't really have the connections into that world. He does, and um, I'm excited to.
0: That's fantastic. And I and I wish you good luck with that. Um, William, the second last traditional question that I always ask is, where can people find more about you and your work? What, what's the best way to start following you?
1: Um, go to williamhurtling.com which is my blog and you've got links to my books there and articles that I've written. And I love to write about the technology in my books. And so there's some articles that go into that.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good. Then, you know, I always ask the same question in the end, which is what's, what's the moral of the story we've been having a blast (laughs) here for the last one hour. And I, I, I honestly hope that our viewers enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed, you know, Communicating and discussing these issues with you, but what's the moral of this, if there's any? What's the final message we should you, you want to send out?
1: You know, I think I will, I will, I will go with that theme that we got to towards later in the conversation, which is really the best thing that people can do. I think for themselves, it's most personally rewarding and to shape their worldview is to expose themselves to a diversity of uh, inputs and. You know, if, if right now you're in the position where you're just following Ray and that's all that you've got, you know, read and learn about some other stuff. And if conversely, if you're only on the risk side, you know, think about the benefits and, and, and think about things other than AI. Um, think about people. So d- diversity of inputs.
0: Fantastic. That, that's a great message. And by the way, that message really hit home with me when I interviewed uh, Carl Schroeder. Uh, who said to me that uh, the singularity is an old, old idea and we should move uh, forward. She, he said the singularity is a lens through which with, with which you can observe the world, but there are many other lenses in the toolkit that we can use and, and look through. So we shouldn't limit ourselves through a single lens but but you know change the points of
1: view. Right. Wonderful metaphor.
0: Yes. So William. Thank you very much for being with us today. And uh, I wish you the very best with your latest book, The Turing Exception, which I have to admit I enjoyed very much.
1: Thank you very much. I loved being here. So I hope we will do it again in the future. The...